Welcome to Made in China, Ish, a podcast by Chinese adopted Asian American that discusses racial identity, experiences, insights, and advice. But don't worry if you're not an Asian American adoptee. I think you'll still find something to relate to here. There are a lot of things I wish I was told before I left my hometown and experienced the real world. Well, as real as your freshman year of college can get. All I wanted was to be understood and heard, and that's my goal here—to amplify adopted voices and let people like freshman year me know that you're not alone. So, what's up? My name's Grace Tomlinson, and I'm made in China-ish. Hello, hello. It certainly has been a little bit since I've been back recording podcasts, and part of that is because I did start school again. We were sort of in person. I only had one in person class, but I hope that if you were also in school like me, you survived your first semester of Zoom University. Before we get started, my name is Grace. I'm your host. I was adopted from Nanning, China, at a little over a year old, and I'm also a student at Penn State University. So while the university was in their in-person period, quote unquote, I had the great opportunity of meeting up with a fellow adoptee at Penn State, Joy Zin, and it turns out that we've actually been going to the same school for a while. We met through subtle Asian adoptee traits, though. So having the opportunity to meet people, I think that's pretty cool because when I first started this podcast, and I guess when I first started school as well, it felt like there weren't as many adoptee connections that I had. So meeting, not just Joy, but a few other adoptees that have Penn State relationships in one way or another has been pretty exciting. So this week I had the opportunity to meet with Joy Zin in person, which is why the audio is going to be a little different than usual. And we talked about our experiences as adoptees at Penn State, our experiences just thus far throughout our journey at school, and identity as well. I mean that's what this whole podcast is about. So without further ado, I have Joy Zin. I know, right? It's just it's a podcast. It's rapping the whole time. You wouldn't want me to do that. Freestyle, go. Okay. Hello, Joe. Your name is Joy. I know. It's been a day. Oh my gosh. You know what? It's Thursday. It's the afternoon. It happens. Hello, Joy Zin. It's so great to meet you in person. We met over subtle Asian adoptee traits, but we go to the same school. We both go to Penn State. You're a junior. You're a senior. You're a year older than me. I'm old. Oh, what a boomer. <laughs> what a time to have your senior year too. You're a senior, and you're adopted from Hubei in China.、Mm-hmm. And you were adopted at the age of ten months, and、mm-hmm. currently reside when you're not in Penn State in Connecticut. In Connecticut. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing in Connecticut. Well. Connecticut, in and of itself, is a pretty boring state. There's not a whole lot there. It's just very close to New York and Boston, which is like the big selling point for Connecticut. Ironically,、um, I grew up in a very stereotypical white middle class suburb.、Um, not a lot of diversity when I was growing up, although it's a lot more diverse now.、Um, predominantly white high school, public school. Yeah. So how did? Because I know we were talking earlier, and I think one of the most interesting things at Penn State is people would be like, "This is the most diverse place I've been、yeah. to." Yeah. And I think for me, it's been like one of the least diverse places I've been to, and it's just because we're all from such different areas.、Mm-hmm. So what's it been like for you? For me, well, it's funny because I, the first time I came to Maine campus, I was in, I think it was eighth grade, 
because my dad went to Penn State Worthington Scranton because he's from Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. So he had never been to main campus and for his birthday, since he's a huge Penn State fan, like the good alum that he is, um, we came to University Park and I was like, oh my God, this is the most Asian people I've ever seen in one place outside of literally China. So, and I love the campus, so that's what drew me here. Yeah, so what was your transition like from Connecticut to the middle of Pennsylvania? I guess, well, let's start off, what made you want to choose Penn State? Was it your dad's like alumni here, or was it anything else? I really loved the campus, and I loved the diversity aspect to it, because I've never, I'd never been in a place where so many different people were in the same space, mm -hmm. you know? Like, on this campus, just walking around every day, I hear like five or six different languages and people from all kinds of backgrounds, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, that's really cool. What was it like for you identity-wise? Um, did you have any identity issues or just identity experiences, not necessarily issues? I think when I was in middle school and probably through the beginning of high school, I went through like a really big rejection phase, you know, where it's like, I don't want to do anything Asian or like seem Asian. I just want to like pull off white as far as I can, which I think was really a defense mechanism because that was a really tough time in my life. So I think it was more a defense mechanism than anything. And I think coming to college and seeing that there were other Asian people like me was really what helped me grow as a person. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your freshman year, I guess. Which dorms were you in? I lived in Beaver my freshman year, which was very convenient because it's right across the street from South where I work. So I could wake up five minutes before work and get to work on time. Yeah. Um, I picked Pollock not only because of its location, because you know it's like in the middle-ish of campus, I also really liked that it wasn't all freshmen because I didn't want to live with all freshmen because I wanted to have friends that were older than me that kind of already knew what was going on, which ended up happening, which was really nice. Um, I actually lived in Beaver for two years. I stayed in Beaver for my freshman and my sophomore year. And in the past two years, I've lived in on-campus apartments. Mm -hmm. And you want to go into pathology or speech? Speech-language speech pathology. Speech-language pathology. Yeah, so I'm not too familiar with that. So what are some of the things that you're learning? I know you're applying to grad schools right now. Yes, the grad school chaos. But speech pathology, the way I always tell people is um, speech pathology can, can be anything from children who need help pronouncing their R's to older adults who've had strokes and need help relearning how to speak. Um, speech pathologists, the main areas that we cover are voice disorders. So like if someone has like a really airy quality to their voice or someone's voice is really harsh, we can help with that. Um, we help with swallowing disorders. Like if someone, let me think. Like if someone's esophagus doesn't work properly or like something, or like part of their tongue is missing and they have to figure out how to adequately chew their food and swallow it. Um, we do that, voice swallowing. And then we do language disorders and we work with a lot of people with developmental disabilities um, to help increase their communication skills. So basically it's like what I call, it, it's like the hard science side of human interaction. Interesting. I know I had worked with a speech pathologist growing up because I had like a hearing loss and they wanted to make sure I could pronounce everything correctly. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that makes sense though because um, when it comes to kids with hearing loss, it, a lot of the factors that determine whether they develop speech under normal progression have to do with the people around them, not necessarily them. So if you have a child with hearing loss, chances are they'll develop speech at a more normal rate if they have more models around them. And also if you can figure out what sounds they can hear and can't hear. Because if you can't hear a sound, it's really hard to try and pronounce it because you have no idea, you have no like basis for how it's supposed to be. That's really cool. So yeah. you want to go on the more speech track then? Well, here's the, here's the dilemma. So in undergrad, a lot of what we focus on is language disorders, developmental disabilities, and things that have to do with children. Somewhat ironically, my minor is in gerontology, which is the study of aging. And I love 
I love everything about it. I love aging. I really do, though. Like, I really do believe that life gets better as you age. Mm -hmm. If, with the caveat of if you know how to age in the, I don't want to say the right way, but if you know how to age gracefully. Because to me, you're already past childhood. And even if you have children, you won't be experiencing that. So I'm one of those people that would much rather kind of have insight on what's to come than what's already passed. Mm -hmm. So, but back to speech pathology. So I'm really not sure what area I want to go into yet, but I'm really interested in augmentative and alternative communication. It's like Stephen Hawking who couldn't speak and he used like, what do I call it, like the monotone voice. That kind of programming is the stuff that I would do. Um, I'm also curious about voice disorders. So like when you hear about celebrities that are on vocal rest, they might be working with a speech pathologist or voice therapist to help heal their vocal folds because they get abused, obviously, when you're singing that many times a week. That's so interesting. It's, speech is so important, obviously, for our communication throughout our everyday life that you never think about those people who really make sure that everyone is able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's something that people really take for granted because it seems so simple because sure. most of us learn it at such a young age. But for those of us that don't develop in that typical fashion, it can be a real struggling point because it's a very complex process that involves a lot of external factors. So even if, even if someone has all the right tools, if the environment around them doesn't facilitate that language, then there might be few struggles. Yeah, so you've been studying this for nearly three and a half-ish years. We're coming up on midterms. Is that the yes. major that you came in with? Yeah, I actually, I was one of those people that came into college knowing what I wanted to do. So the start nice. of my freshman year, I just kind of like took off yeah. and started with all my major classes. So coming up in spring, I only have one major class left. And then also public speaking, because I oh put it gosh. off for all four years. <laughs> well, then you should be great about that, or you can just analyze everyone as they speak. I'm just, I'm just going to cruise through it. I hate public speaking. And also, despite the fact that public speaking is such a common class that like there's five billion sections of it, for whatever reason, it never worked right into my schedule. I and know. I was just like, I can't do this. Well, there's so many courses that are only for like first semester students or only for engineering students. I'm like, I'm just trying to take the class. I'm like, I'm not in engineering. Just let me in. I get it. They need help speaking, but so do I. Actually, with the graduate school thing, one thing that's wild is, so the graduate school exam, the GRE, which is like the general exam, it's, it's like the SAT where it's like percentile based. So even if you get everything correct, if everyone else got everything correct, you're only going to be like 50th percentile because it's average. But the math section of the GRE, the scores are actually getting biased because there's so many engineers taking it that they're boosting up the math scores. And then you have me who picked my major based on the fact that I only had to take two math classes. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so what's the diversity been like within that major? I guess you never really think about diverseness in speech pathology. Well, what's, what's interesting about that is that you kind of do have to think about it because yeah. the reality is everyone speaks a little bit differently. So like, you and I both speak English, but you're from Philly, and the words you use in Philly might not necessarily be like the same kinds of vocabulary that we'd use in Connecticut. So it's like different dialects of English. Yeah. Um, but when you, it comes to diversity in the field, the field is actually very, very white. It's like 91% white. Um, Asian Americans make up, if I'm remembering the stats correctly, only about like 3 to 4% of the field of all qualified audiologists and speech pathologists. And the same thing for the African-American population, I believe. Because both of us, both of our demographics are pretty similar. But the field is very, very white and very female for the most part. Have you experienced a lot of diversity in your classes, with your professors, or with your peers? Um, hmm. My classes are mostly 
with other white women, but there are there is a healthy amount of diversity in my classes, especially for a field that is so predominantly white, like I said. Um, actually, one of the, my acoustics professor is Dr. Lee, and she was really great. I didn't do really well in her class, but like that was on me for like taking 18 credits and regretting oh that gosh. choice. But she's really sweet. She actually just had a baby, and I've been meaning to email her and be like, so, do you have pictures of the baby? Oh. Yeah, so aside from your major, I guess, which is really fascinating, I think that is mostly fascinating for me because I, I worked a lot in my elementary school years with a speech therapist and go in and get my little prizes and we'd work on different pronunciations of things. But what are, I guess, coming into Penn State, what are some of the things that you were involved in um, when you, I think for me, one of the things that I wanted to do was find my niche and I feel like with you, you're all over the place when it comes to knowing people, but yeah, so what are some of the things that you are involved in, were involved in? Oh man. <laughs> when I tell you I have bounced around all kinds of organizations on this campus, I really have. Um, my freshman year, I spent a lot of time um, being interested in Greek life and trying, and trying to get into that, but I found out that it wasn't for me, mostly just because of the time commitment. Yeah. Because I really wanted to like diversify what I did and also for my resume because, you know, I got to get into graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I didn't end up doing that, um, but I bounced around through a whole bunch of different orgs. Um, I'm Jewish, so I did Hall for Hunger for a little bit, which is basically, um, it's kind of like a bake sale, with, but with traditional Jewish bread called challah. And then the profits go to, I believe it's a food pantry, but I'm not sure which one. Um, and I stopped doing that predominantly because what I found with a lot of white American Jews is that it's very kind of clicky. And I didn't enjoy that. And it's not that they're trying to be exclusive, it's just that it's hard when I didn't do any of those same clubs that they did. So, um, and then I was a part of Penn State Charge, which is a women's workout group. And to be honest with you, the only reason I'm not in that is because I'm actually a lazy bum. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, this fault was all going to be virtual. And for me, I have enough problems trying to be active when it's not virtual that like motivating myself to get on a computer to do a workout is like really pulling teeth. So I was like, maybe that's not for me this semester. But um, last fall by chance, well, kind of by chance. Um, I joined a THON org called Pillar Benefiting THON that I really enjoy. And I'm on the executive board this year, and it's great. I love this org. There's so many great people in it. Um, and we do a lot of good work, and I enjoy that. And then outside of, outside of all the thousands of clubs I've been in, and the one that I actually am like long-term invested in, um, I work on campus, which is basically where I live. If you ever need to find me and you don't know where I am, chances are I'm in South Dining working. Noted, noted. But. <laughs> What are you on the exec board for Pillar? I am the donor and alumni relations chair. So basically what I take care of is I handle thought envelope in donation box distribution and recollection, and then I coordinate with alumni to get alumni videos, and I work with our thought nation chair to try and do fundraisers um, that are run by either alumni of Pillar or parents of students and things like that. Yeah, so I guess everything that you've been doing, you've been dipping your hands in a lot of jars here, meeting a lot of great people. How has that affected your identity, if at all? Has it helped you grow on who you are as an Asian American? Has it had you pause and reflect, I guess, about how you see yourself? I think maybe not so much on being an Asian American, but very much just on like what is important to me and what yeah. I value. You know, Because most of the orgs that I'm involved in don't directly relate to the Asian American identity, with the exception of SAD, of course. Um, but I guess it's just kind of helped me to evaluate where my priorities are and where I want to invest my time. 
Because I found that when you have so many things to do, you really have to pick and choose what's important to you and why it's important to you, you know? Yeah, I really like that picking, because you can only be so overwhelmed about yeah. certain things. So yeah, that's really great. Let me take a look and see what else is on here. So yeah, overall, um, so we discussed earlier about the diversity on campus. So overall, the environment and how it's a predominantly white university, what's your perspective on that? It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough situation because for me it hasn't necessarily been negative, but it's been very clear to me that some of my friends that are from diverse backgrounds have had very different experiences than I have. Um, I was actually in the College of Health and Human Development's Women's Leadership Initiative, um, and a friend of mine and I helped to draft a letter to try and ask the initiative to update their curriculum so it's more inclusive and also to change their recruitment to appeal to more women of color. Um, because in my class of 36, I believe there were seven of us that were women of color. And there were definitely presentations on diversity where our white counterparts would either be asleep or on their phones and not paying attention. And not only is that kind of disrespectful to the fact that this is people's lived existence, but also we're entering one of the most diverse work environments in history. So it like behooves you to be aware of these things, even if you don't agree with them, just to be cognizant of these issues and how to approach them in a tasteful manner, important. Yeah, that's really important. I know that in Calm, they've been pretty good about diversity, but at the same time, there's just certain areas of communications that are always gonna be just a little less diverse than others. Yeah, and, and, sometimes, and sometimes, sometimes you do kind of have to pander to the masses to try and get your little one word in there and then you can kind of diversify your speech. Yeah, you know? I know that um, one of the organizations I'm in is Club Cross Country and they've been pretty good about diversity but also it's just so predominantly like white in there that it can be hard to do that sometimes and it's not that they're trying, there's no malice of course, it's yeah. just not, they're not too familiar with any of the I guess, where people of color are coming from in certain yeah. situations. And also I think it's hard for people to be aware of issues that they've never faced. Yeah. Because it's hard to connect with people on things that they've never experienced, especially things that go beyond words. Like when we talk about adoption, like some of the feelings that are associated with adoption, there's no good way to put it into words that someone who's not adopted will understand. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those like unexplainable things that like, try as hard as I will to relate to someone who's not adopted, I'll never be able to fully get that, you know? Yeah, and I guess for me, coming to Penn State, people weren't too familiar with, well, they were familiar with Asian American adoptees, but I don't think they've ever met one, I guess, in person. They're like, oh, I know someone who knows someone who is yeah. adopted. So how did you approach that? Did you have any situations where it was a little awkward for the person, or you had to sit down and explain what it was like for you? I mean, I think part of the adoptee experience is kind of getting used to being asked to advocate for all other adoptees. Yeah. Because in most environments that both of us are in, we're the only Asian adoptee in the room. And that comes with a whole host of other things. But I think that that just kind of, I don't know, I forgot where I was going with that to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, my freshman roommate was also adopted from China, which wow. I think helped a lot. I don't know about you, I've been pretty good at spotting people who are adopted, like, in certain situations, because, like, she was on the, were you on the Facebook page where you could, like, pick out your roommate freshman year, basically? Yes. And I saw her, I was like, I know. You were like, I smell an adopted. I see it. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> and so, yeah, we were, we were freshman year roommates together, and I think that was really helpful for me, 
to be able to like bounce off of someone else who are both going through like the similar transitional period. But I think one thing that's pretty interesting between like the difference between you and I is that I like really struggled, I guess, with my identity freshman year. And I think that's because I came from like a little bit more of a diverse background mm -hmm. when it came to people who were able to like, I don't know, go past like the Asianness, but also just people who knew me, knew yeah. me as like the Asian the who was um, like had white parents. So mm -hmm. in your experience, what were some of the ways that you sort of handled your identity so that I'm not saying that I don't know if you did have like a really big identity crisis, if you will, but um, be able to keep calm and I think for me it really was like an ongoing process I can't yeah. identify like one point where there really was like a crisis period yeah. I think there were just points where I was more or less comfortable with my identity as an adoptee mm -hmm. and I think college has made me more comfortable with my identity as an adoptee because seeing other Asian people who are like me and not like the Asian people from my hometown who I couldn't relate to at all is very refreshing and also subtle Asian adoptee traits it's been a huge part of that because just having, even though I haven't met most of these people in person, just having a, like a sounding board for adoptee issues is very, very, I don't want to say like, nice is like too simple of a word, but Yeah, I think you get what I mean. No, yeah, and for anyone listening, I've been talking about subtle Asian adoptee traits a lot because that's where I met so many of these people, and it's really just one big Facebook page of adoptees from all around the world. There's people from the UK, from Australia from everywhere. So how did you find that page? I know I found it through another podcast. Um, I think, oh god, I think I found it through my friend Robin Hilke. She does, um, she does a lot of design work. She went to RISD. Actually, when I went back to China, she was in my group and that's how I met her because she is, I don't know, I would think like 24, 25. She's a little bit older, um, but she's actually does a lot of advocacy work and she does the designs for Color of Change. That portrait of George Floyd that was going around that was getting shared by celebrities, that's her art. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Artist. She that's also really has, cool. Yeah, she's amazing. And she also has two really, I don't know if she still has two anymore, but she used to have a really cute buddy. But yeah, and um, she's, she's also adopted. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, she's from, she's from New York City, but I don't know where she is now. I think she's still in New York, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think she's how I found the group. Mm -hmm. I, but I'm not sure because it's been like two years since I joined, so it's like a. Really oh yeah, nice you've stretch. been in there a while. I just joined this past summer, and it's, it's been so great to meet her. I was kind of like a ghost, just kind of peeking around for the first year, and then probably about a year ago, I started being a little more active, mm -hmm. just because for whatever reason, Facebook algorithms, the posts started popping up more, and I was like, wow, like these people get it. I don't have to go in that whole long adoptee rant of, please don't be rude, you know? Exactly. Yes. No, when I found it, it's just great to know that there's other people who feel similarly to us and that there's people as local as Penn State who are adopted. I saw that post that was like, oh, are there any adoptee groups at your university? And for a really long time, I wish that there was one here and I'm glad there are other people who are like, yeah, I wish I had something like that at my school. I, I think, well, let's see. The two, the two other Asian adoptees that I knew both graduated, one is Anthony Raspoli, who was yes. in this group, who I actually, <laughs> funny enough, I actually forgot that I met him, and then found no. him again through the group, and I was like, wow, Anthony Raspoli, that name looks so familiar, and then I went to his, like, Facebook page, and on his banner, I was like, oh, like, the neurons connected, and I was like, I do know you, but yeah, that was funny. We actually met through my first college boyfriend, by complete chance, nice. because... Both he and my ex were in 
think it's the Asian, double ACF, yes, Asian American Christian Fellowship. Yes. But I'm Jewish, so I was like, uh, yeah. why are you bringing me to this? But okay. Um, and Anthony remembers this better than I do, but basically my ex Tim was like, oh my God, you two are both adopted. Talk. Oh my gosh, those kinds of people were like, oh, oh yes. yeah. Like, oh. yes, go talk. It was one of those. That's funny. And then I forgot that I met him. <laughs> We met like twice and then I completely forgot. That's so funny. And I felt so bad. I was like, because we messaged back and forth on Facebook and then like it was starting to slowly come back and I was like, oh my You're god. Your two like brain cells rubbing together. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I completely forgot. That's so funny. <sighs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It really do be like that sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Wait, speaking of AACF, they tried to get me to, but I'm just not that religious, so I, yeah. I felt bad I couldn't join. But um, did you ever consider joining the Asian American Undergraduate Student Association? I joined it very briefly, but I just kind of didn't, it's not that I didn't feel welcome, I just felt like I didn't really fit. That was me, that was my perspective. I was like, they're all nice, it's just like I'm an outsider, I feel like, in this yeah. situation. And, and I think it was more of a personality thing than me being adopted. Yeah. Because I never really, they were never like those Asians that are like, you're too white, you're so whitewashed. I'm like, well, you know, I, I I don't know what you want me to tell yeah, me. I just, I felt like I couldn't relate yeah. too much to all the things that are happening. It, the, the group has kind of niche tastes sometimes, and I just, I don't, I ironically still get their emails despite the fact that I haven't gone to a meeting in probably two and a half years, That's me. but I can't figure out how to get off their email list. I'm on the list, sir. I don't know how to get off the list, and I don't know who to contact to be like, please take me off this list. Hit reply all and just reply to the whole list, sir. I might, though. Either oh that gosh. or I'll go digging through Facebook and be like, can you please take me off this? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. yeah, I love how you have such a positive outlook on things. It's like really refreshing. And it's great for me too, because I, I feel like initially with my whole adoptee experience, I was so negative about it. I was like, I just, it's so stressful and everything. But it's really nice to talk to people who are like, yeah, it's just a part of who I am, but yeah. you've had such a positive outlook on everything. It's been really yeah. great to hear. But but I like to describe it as like positivity with a, with a tint of realism, because I don't, I yeah. don't think that like, like, um, I posted something on my Facebook the other night that was like, most people think of adoption only in a positive light, but that doesn't do justice to what adoptees really experience. Because the reality is, it's not all like rainbows and glitter and yay family. It, there's this whole other side of it that doesn't really get talked about as much as it should. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, and I guess in your family environment too, we can go back and yeah. talk about that a yeah. little bit. So do you have any other siblings? Um, I have two older sisters from my dad's previous marriage. Gotcha, so not adopted. No, not adopted. Um, mm -hmm. My sisters are, oh god, I have to do math, <laughs> 32 and 29, and my oldest sister has two little ones, so I get to be an aunt, which means that I get That's to have so fun cute. with children, but they're returnable, so they're not my responsibility. Oh my gosh, I know, right? <laughs> aunt duty is the best. And then I, my middle sister is eight years older than me, and she just got married, mm -hmm. and she just has fur children. She has a ton of them, though. She has like two dogs, a cat, and two ferrets. Oh my gosh. She runs like a very small zoo. That's amazing. But she also lives in like the middle of nowhere in Connecticut. So she can have that space to have oh, a small yeah. zoo. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like it's it's a very short paved road. Her house, another house, state forest, <laughs> and a dirt road. No tell, joke. Tell the ferrets to go run in the forest. <laughs> Be but back by dinner. And their and their next door neighbor has like free range chickens that eat mm -hmm. all the ticks. So the dogs just like run wherever. And oh, amazing. Yeah, it's it's wild. That's so fun. So did you grow up around them a lot, or because they're older than you? You didn't get to see them as much? Well, it was kind of complicated because they split time between houses. Yeah. So they were at my house. Oh, God, let's see if I can remember this right. Um, when both my sisters still lived at home, I was still in elementary school, and they split their time, I think it was Sunday 
Sunday mid-afternoon they'd come over and then they'd leave Monday night after dance. And then they'd be at my house Wednesday through Thursday, I wanna say. It was like a very peculiar day arrangement that frankly I don't really remember. Um, because my oldest sister, since she's so much older than me, she moved out when I was 10, I think? Yes, 10, because I'm thinking. Because her now husband, I met when I was eight. Yeah. So I've known him for more time than like, the lifespan perspective, I've now known him for over half my life, which is like a really weird thing to think about. But, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I just thought about that. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. Also, ironically, the first time I met my brother-in-law, he accidentally tripped me and I fell on my face. Oh my gosh. And my brother-in-law was like, yeah, I totally thought your parents were going to, like, crucify me. But then you laughed and we were good. Bonding moment right there. <laughs> first impressions all around. Great first impressions. So did you grow up sort of like an only child? Or did you yeah. With your sisters? Yeah. And also because they were so much older than me and they split time. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't know many 16-year-olds or 19-year-olds that are like, yeah, I totally want to hang out with, like, my 7-year-old sister. That's me. So, I have a younger sister who's 10 years younger than me. So it's, it's crazy to think about. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think it's also interesting being the younger sibling, mm -hmm. you know, because I feel like it's, my sisters have a different perspective on it than I do. Yeah. You know? Have you talked to them about what it was like to have, like, a much younger sibling who's also adopted? No, not really. Um, I don't know. I'm close with my sisters, but I'm not as close as I would say, like, I see people are who have siblings that are, like, two, three years apart, even yeah. four years apart. Um, I'm not as close with them, but I wouldn't say I'm not close with them. Yeah. It's that weird thing where it's at all of us, well at least, I'm at a very different stage in life than my sisters, because they're both married, the middle one will most likely have children within the next like two, three years-ish, and the other one has two, and who knows, there might be more. So, it's just like very different stages. Yeah. And so you said that you went back to China? Yeah, I went back in, I went back in, let's see, 2012. So through like cool. China ties. Like what what an interesting like age to go back to because you're a teenager, you're a little angsty. Yeah. It was it was very interesting because I think yes, it was right after my twelfth birthday when we went back. And did you go to Hubei? Yeah, we did. We went all around China. It was kind of like a mix of tourism and adoption because mm -hmm. we took so many plane flights in ten days. Because first we had to get to China. And yeah. Like you can't just like take a casual bus through China, you know? Like you have to fly different places. So we went all over. Um, we went to Beijing, we went to Xi'an, we went to my province, we went to Hubei. Um, we actually went to my orphanage, but... How was that? Yeah, and, they, and the, well, the orphanage director was the same person, um, but my auntie who took care of me wasn't there. But we did find out two very interesting things that we didn't know before. Um, when we went back, we found out that I was actually more like in foster care, and that the auntie that took care of me actually took me home with her, and I only spent about like one or two days in the orphanage a month when they did like monthly checkups, mm -hmm. which we didn't that's know before. Really cool. I thought I was there the whole time. I think that's a similar situation I was in too. And then the other thing we found out that was interesting was that, so we knew where I was found, but we found out that I was found with things, because we found out that I was found in a shoebox, with like diapers and like all the things that you would need to take care of a baby, which I found really sweet and endearing because I didn't know that before. It was kind of just like, well, they found you, ta-da, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of nice to know the pieces that you can know. Exactly. That's really interesting. So was it the orphanage director who told you about that? Well, the orphanage director, if I'm remembering right, they had like police files and things like that mm -hmm. just from their records that they showed us. And then our translator read them and explained to us what the director was saying and what the form said. Wow. 
how. Because so how did that feel, knowing, learning that information about yourself? It, I remember kind of having like a block processing it at the, ti- cause at you the time. Because you were younger than yeah, you are it now. Was, it was also one of those things that's like, it's very hard to process this when there's like an orphanage director breathing down your neck and yeah. also your adoptive parents. Your parents you're just trying there, to yeah. process it. So, um, I don't know. I think, I think at the time, I was like mildly intrigued is the best way I can describe it. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you're also 12. I feel like yeah. learning that when you're 12 versus learning it when you're 21 are two yeah. very different like, times. Like it was kind of just one of those things that's like, okay, neat. Yeah. But it was nice to know like more about your past. Because when you don't know anything, like I'll pretty much take anything. This is yeah. fine. So. Yeah, yeah. No, for me, um, I'm not sure I obviously, I've been back to China to visit, to get my younger sisters adopted. Gotcha. But we weren't, I don't think we learned too much information about my own past, but I, that's really cool that they have those files about like all of the children that have gone out and been adopted. And I also have like foster parents too, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because so often like we hear the narrative that it's just like children in orphanages, mm-hmm. like laying in cribs unattended. But then I hear more and more stories about adoptees like us that probably had foster parents. And my parent, what was interesting is my adoptive parent said that it kind of made sense that she was my foster parent because she was so broken up over when they adopted me. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell in the picture that they have of, like, the four of us that she's really, really, like, happy but also sad, you know? Yeah. So, no, same it makes sense. Mine, yeah, my foster mom, probably same thing. I know that when we went back, we got to see her again, and she was like, I had to stop, like, fostering children because it was so hard. It is. Yeah, actually, I did not get to meet my foster mom. She either didn't work there anymore or something came up, which we were warned about. We were warned, like, listen, when you go to this orphanage, this is the Chinese government we're talking mm-hmm. about. Like, anything can happen. Yeah. So yeah. if it happens, it happens. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And for whatever reason, she either wasn't there or didn't work there anymore. But um, we left gifts for her that hopefully got to her. We don't mm-hmm. really know, but we can hope. Yeah, oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. How did they present that information to you? It was just like reading off of a list and it was like, it yeah, was, you were found in a shoebox. It was, from what I remember, we like went to the orphanage and they gave us, except now it's not really an orphanage since China has such a huge aging population. Actually, what they do now is a lot of elder care, which is really interesting. Oh. Yeah, I know. I didn't think of that either. But they said that a lot of the orphanages are shifting to elder care and this one in particular still had like an orphanage piece to it because I don't remember this part of the trip, but we have this really funny picture of this, no joke, maybe the smallest toilet I've ever seen, because obviously like Western toilet versus squatty potty. Mm-hmm. It's the tiniest Western toilet I've ever seen. It's like child size, like the ones that, that you can like buy at the store, but it's like an actual porcelain toilet, oh my which gosh. my family thought was hysterical. But um, I remember it being like a conference room and we started out just casually like talking and catching up and then we went to like you know, the big official table and sat down with the translator and my parents and the director and we talked over like the files of how I was found and stuff like that. That's really interesting. And then we went to lunch. <laughs> of course, had to tie it up in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, do you have any advice for people who may be going into their college years as an adoptee or just any transition yeah. in life? Um, I think I just say, you will get there and it may not be at the pace you want it to be but you'll get there and don't be afraid to search out help don't be afraid to find help or ask for help 
Because even if you're not necessarily asking like the right person who'll have the answers, if they're a good person and someone who really cares about you, they'll help you find those answers. So. Yeah. And then another question I've been meaning to ask people is, do you have any advice for parents who have adopted children or want to adopt from China or just internationally as well? Do your research, put the time in, like this is someone's life that you're, that you're taking into your hands. And it's not just a life in the sense that like, oh, here's this baby. It's you also have to account for the trauma that is adoption. You have to look into the history of it. You really need to do that research and make sure that you know what your child might experience or what they might not experience, so. Yeah, well that's yeah. all I have. Is there anything else you wanna add? No, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really yeah. great to meet you in person. I'm so excited to meet you. I was like, oh my God, another human in person during COVID? In, no, especially during COVID, just meeting new people. And then I feel like over quarantine, I like met, met quote unquote, like online so yeah. many different people. Oh, me too, for and sure. And like, oh, go Penn State. I'm like, oh, me too. There's more. Yeah. I was going through, what was funny that you say that, is I was going through my Facebook friends the other day and I was like, I wonder how many adoptee friends I have. And I went through and I was like, Oh my god. No, when I joined SAT, so many friends requests. I'm like, I'm so popular. And I was like, oh my god. I didn't know there were this many adoptees. Because there's like 3.7 thousand people in this group, I think. There's a it's lot. Like, it's like, yeah. Let me look. Let me look real quick. And everyone's so welcoming. Yeah. And I was like, and when I joined the group, it was not nearly that big. I think when I joined, it was like maybe 300 people. Mm -hmm. Very small. Quarantine. But quarantine. Yeah, speaking of quarantine, quarantine here in Philadelphia, Governor Wolf has really put down the hammer on what we can and can't do. All indoor dining is closed. Retail has been pretty restricted. Let me know what it's like near you. But yeah, thank you so much, Joy, for coming on the podcast and just meeting up in person. Again, it was really cool to be able to meet people that I've met through Zoom screen and gotten to know through Zoom screen in person in Willard of all buildings. Now that we're back on track here, uh, my goal is to have a more consistent uploading schedule, even if it's just for a little bit. I know coming up, my school has taken away a week of our spring break, but given us an extra week of winter, so hopefully that'll let me iron out a few things in my own schedule. But until next time, my name is Grace, and I hope you have a great day. See ya.